0: We don't get freedom by an absence of limitations, but strangely enough, by being willing to be completely committed to our experience of limitation and to go so deeply into that experience that potentially we discover that there's no essential nature to all this drama about myself and what's significant. It's not fatalism. It doesn't mean don't try to improve the quality of our life. It's just that that's secondary. For somebody who's interested in personal growth, it's very smart and fortunate if they can improve qualities and capacities, but that's not going to lead to freedom.
1: This is the Dr. John Berardi Show, a podcast that seeks important lessons in a seemingly unlikely place amid competing points of view. In each episode, I look at fascinating, sometimes even controversial topics through the minds of divergent thinkers, and together we tease out unifying threads from ideas that may feel irreconcilable. Today's topic are behavior optimization projects, personal development projects, habit change projects, or any of the self-help initiatives a lot of people are embarking on nowadays, actually helping them. In part one, we covered how, maybe surprisingly, academic ideas around habit change and personal development have become so widespread in popular publishing. We talked about why that is and how we may be able to leverage some of these insights in our own lives. We also talked about how the field of adult education has its own insights about the process of personal transformation, some that are different from the field of psychology. In part two, we continued discussing transformation learning looking for insights from a field that hasn't quite enjoyed the popularity of habit and behavior science but is full of important lessons about human transformation and here in part three we'll turn a critical eye toward change and personal development projects examining whether they can do more harm than good we'll also discuss ways of being in the world that aren't centered around obsessive personal development but still oriented towards happiness and perhaps even more importantly, freedom, while still recognizing the social context in which we all live. So let's get started. Look at Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. There's the word habits. Look even earlier at Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's a book about behavior change and optimization. Certainly there's a long tradition of books and resources and programs that are helping people optimize their behavior. That's Dr. BJ Fogg again, who we introduced in part one of this series. You may recall that earlier on, we talked about why so many people nowadays are reading books about habits and behavior change and personal development. Certainly part of it has to do with the multi-billion dollar publishing industry, which offers countless self-improvement book options every year and through a powerful marketing machine convinces us that we're missing out if we don't consume the latest ones. But the other part is likely demand-driven. As Dr. Fogg mentioned, his research at Stanford University showed that, of the people his lab studied, there were three major things that drove self-improvement projects. Number one, they want to feel better about themselves. Number two, they want to have others admire them more or, or feel like they look better in the eyes of others. And number three, they want financial security. Once they achieve these things, they guess, they'll be happier. But will they?
2: We're actually pretty good at figuring out how happy we are. What we're not good at is figuring out what it is that makes us happy.
1: This is happiness researcher Dr. Gillian Mandich, founder of the International Happiness Institute of Health Science Research
2: if you won $10,000 in the lottery today, and I told you to spend that 10K in a way to maximize your happiness, would you A, buy a new wardrobe, B, go on a trip, C, budgeted $200 a week for self-care, things like you know ordering in dinner or buying flowers, or D, donating all your money to charity? And I, I ask this question over and over and over again, and there's not an overwhelming clear answer. Um, the answer is C, budgeting $200 a week for a year. And the reason is because We often think that it's like these big, shiny moments that bring us the most happiness, our graduations, our vacations. They may take up more mental real estate, but in terms of happiness, when we look at what makes a happy life, it's really about creating small bursts of joy throughout our days. And I'm using like small, like air quotes, like time small, not impact small, because what happens is like. I mean, research we call it like small bursts of sort of an upward spiral of positive emotion, right? It's like when you you get a little boost and then you do something else. That's actually, if you add up like time, what adds up to a happier life. But we don't realize that, and we have this bias where we think that if we, you know, work really hard, then one day we will like arrive at happiness or you know success. We see this a lot in the workplace literature too, where we think that if we work really hard, then one day we'll be happy. When in fact, the research really teaches us that that happiness precedes and is a precursor to success, not the other way around.
1: Dr. Fogg raises this issue of bad human intuitions as well. Somebody says, oh, I want to lose weight. When you push on that a little bit, it's not really about what the scale shows. They want to feel like, oh, I'm I'm, I'm not letting myself go, or they want to feel sexy or attractive to others. It's really something else they're going for. It's not really what shows on the scale. And... Part of what we try to do is to help people, even though they may express their aspiration, one way is to push a little bit on that and say, no, what is it that you really want? Is it really you just want to see the number go down on the scale or is there something else? And usually it's something else. The idea here is that our intuitions are often wrong about the kinds of things that'll make us happy, about the kinds of things that will lead to the feeling of quote-unquote better or admired or secure. This, of course, probably has its roots in human evolution.
0: We are expressions of life, and we're organic animals, you know, and we're a current expression of millions of years of evolution.
1: This is Bruce Tift, author of Already Free, Buddhism Meets Psychotherapy on the Path of Liberation. Bruce is a therapist and professor who's practiced for nearly 50 years, Integrating Buddhist ideas with modern psychotherapy techniques.
0: And I think, as far as I can guess, the highest priority for millions, at least of years, hundreds of millions, has been survival and not improving the quality of one's life. That's a rather new experience, I think. And so I think most of our hardwiring in terms of our nervous system, our emotions or hormonal responses is very organized around survival, which usually means immediate gratification. Maybe it means protecting our family, you know, very biological type of stuff. And I think it's pretty recent in terms of evolution that we are actually living with this very unique human capacity to put our attention on something other than just our immediate experience. And it's both an incredible gift and it's also a source of a lot of unnecessary suffering that we can put our attention into fantasies and hopes and plans and memories where I I don't think, I don't know, but I don't think most other animals probably live with so much uh, potential for dissociation.
1: In other words, we simply may not be hardwired to have good intuitions about the kinds of actions and behaviors to take today that will appropriately map to the kinds of things we want to think and feel and become in the future. And we're not just talking about big, important things in the distant future. It could even be little things in the next hour or two.
2: When we think about happiness, we're not necessarily in the same state as when we experience happiness. For example, if we went out, if we went out for dinner and you sit down for dinner and they say, okay, um, we have this really good chocolate souffle for dessert and it takes an hour and a half to make. So if you want the souffle, you have to order it now because we have to prepare it. And so I'd be like, okay, like I love chocolate souffle. Yeah, and I'm starving, right? Cause I just sat down for dinner. And so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, yes, I want that. And then I have apps and I have my big dinner and then dessert rolls around. And I'm not really that hungry anymore. And the joy that I get from that souffle, I probably won't eat it all. And I'm probably not enjoying it as much as if they would have brought it out when I sat down. And that gap, right, this sort of distinction bias where we like we look at different things and we we don't really recognize how we might feel in that moment because we're basing our decision on how we feel in the moment we're thinking about it. It is something that I think I'm just starting to to realize even within myself when I'm making decisions. It's It's so complicated because how we feel um, in one situation may be very different.
1: Back to the big picture life decisions, Bruce Tift thinks about it this way.
0: My guess is that pretty much everyone is trying to take the best care of themselves possible. And there are so many different ways to try to improve the quality of one's life that we never have enough time and energy to do everything. So we're going to choose a very limited number of ways to try to improve the quality of our experiencing. And that's going to be influenced by all sorts of things, our current cultural fads, as well as uh, our life experience and gender training and cultural training, all sorts of things. I think that as far as I can tell, there's millions of years of evolutionary biology that leave us hardwired to want to have more positive experience, more pleasure, and to avoid or get rid of pain. And I don't think that is anything that's going to go away. It's, it's hardwired, I think. But let's say for the last 7,000 years or so with the rise of cities and societies, our, our biology hasn't increasingly been the best guideline for uh, how to have the most satisfying, meaningful life.
1: This is where, at least from my perspective, I recommend getting help. Now, that doesn't have to be a paid coach or therapist, although it could be. I just think it's smart to vet your plans before engaging in a big change or personal development project with believable people who can help you figure out whether the actions you're about to take are likely to lead to the outcomes you want.
0: I think it's sort of an evolutionary experiment in process, you know, one one view that makes sense to me of intelligence is to see it as a a field phenomenon that there's both there's our thinking, there's our intuition, there's our senses, our perceptions, there's our emotions, all of which are contributing to what we call intelligence, and none of them can capture that. That means that intelligence is not definable as an experience. So I think that uh, basically we, try to listen to as wide a range of our experience as possible, our thinking, as well as our intuition, as well as our emotions, as well as other people, what they say, the whole business. And then basically, we're just making uh, our best informed choice. But if we see it as an, a continual experiment, then it's not like we're ever going to get objective confirmation. We're making the right or the wrong choice. Instead, we see how it unfolds and then are continually uh, readjusting our uh, engagement with
1: our life. Dr. Mandich talks about this idea of experimentation as well.
2: Sometimes I forget, though, that knowing what I don't want can be just as valuable of a data point as knowing what I do want. And so you have to start trying things to see if you like them. Like, I may think I value freedom, and then I become really free and I realize, hey, you know what? Like, this isn't really what I want. But I needed to go through that process in order to come up with that outcome. And it may continue to shift and evolve. Um, And so I don't necessarily think that knowing if it's right or wrong is the right metric. It's learning, learning about ourselves. And so our intuition may say that these are my values. And then when you start to play it out, you continually reevaluate, you continue to See, is this going in the direction that I want? And then you can start to rechart or renavigate, like even in terms of, of goal setting.
1: Another issue that arises when we tackle habit change or personal development is the question of whether what's driving our process, our motivation, our intention, is actually helpful.
0: One among many ways of talking about the work in therapy is to move potentially from compulsivity to choice. I think a lot of the question has to do with what are our intentions, what is the meaning, what is the energy we bring to the question of personal development, rather than the various practices that somebody might uh, explore to help them improve the quality of their experience. And I think that's very intelligent. To have a better quality of experience than a worse quality, better to have health than sickness, to have enough money rather than be poor, you know, not uh, be safe rather than unsafe in our life. But I think if it has that obsessional quality that you mentioned, I think that's just another way of talking about compulsivity.
1: And compulsivity, according to Tift even if it's a well-dressed obsession with personal growth is almost always an effort often unconscious to get out of deeper emotional vulnerabilities
0: a developmental view that makes sense to me is that all of us as children have to disconnect from aspects of ourselves that are not welcome in our families would lead to attack or abandonment or bad results. If you grow up in a family where it's not okay to have sadness, everybody has to be happy, then a child, I think, very intelligently, unconsciously, has to disconnect from any feelings of grief, because children don't really have the capacity to feel a feeling without expressing it. So I think children protect themselves, all of us as children protect ourselves, By unconsciously disconnecting from aspects of our experience that aren't welcome or would have bad results. Because that's an intelligent, healthy response to a limited emotional environment, it works. And so it tends to get internalized because we don't want to sort of reinvent the wheel every day. And as internalized survival strategies, it gets carried into adulthood. But now there's an aspect of my experience that is still. off-limits, prohibited, repressed, compartmentalized, pushed out of the way. And it's associated usually with a fair amount of anxiety because it had to do with actual emotional survival issue when I was young. So most of us come into adulthood, I think, with a unconscious sense that there is something that is unworkable about who I am, about my experiencing. And often it seems overwhelming or dangerous or shameful or just too much or mysterious or, you know, we have different associations, but often it ends up with us feeling that there's something about me that is not okay. And I end up feeling divided against myself. I feel like a problematic person. I feel like I'm at war with myself in a state of struggle, you know, different versions of that. And so a lot of our project of wholeness, I think, has an unconscious quality of saying that, well, when I don't have these difficult aspects to who I am, then I can show up and be my best friend and, sh- and be embodied and present and intimate. But it's still um, often with an unconscious sort of conviction that these difficult aspects that I've lived with all my life are somehow not only unworkable but are actually dangerous to feel it's like a very primitive biological response of uh it feels like uh something really bad would happen to me if i had to feel mm-hmm. my grief or my rage or my sexuality or my uh powerlessness or whatever the thing is so i think many people have this unexamined idea that uh, when I have healed my wounds, when I have resolved these issues, then I'll show up. But we're only living in the present moment ever. So, you know, a year from now, there's always going to be room for improvement. And if my acceptance of my own experiencing uh, is always conditional, then it's possible it never comes, really. It's never going to be actually an experience of freedom, in my view.
1: I'd like to linger here for a moment because I think it's important. This idea that if the animating spirit behind one's obsession with growth is a sense of, quote-unquote, happiness or okayness in the future, then it's unlikely they'll ever achieve that.
0: Mm -hmm. Self-improvement never actually leads to freedom. It just leads to improving the quality of our life, which is good, but that's different than freedom.
1: Which is where a lot of therapies come in.
0: And so a lot of the work that makes sense to me is to do the counter-instinctual practices of voluntarily taking ourselves into exactly those difficult, vulnerable feelings that we've organized our life around avoiding. But nobody wants to do that, of course, so it has to be a discipline. We can't wait until it feels right or this our circumstances support us or we get social support or whatever.
1: Back to the idea of compulsions.
0: So it could be that I'm compulsive about personal growth or about uh, drinking or about meditating or exercise. It could be about all sorts of things. But if somebody is trying to uh, put their well-being in the future, then I think the pretty straightforward implication is that they are making an unconscious claim that their immediate experience of themselves and of their life is not acceptable. So if I'm saying with myself and my partner I'll fully engaged with my life, when I have fill in the blank, lost some weight, or uh, have enough money or get enlightened or uh, get social status, Well, those things as things are are fine, but if it's a project, then almost always there's uh, an underlying sense that who I am, the quality of my life, my life circumstances are not really acceptable
1: as they are in the present. The irony, of course, is that this sense is what seems to be motivating a lot of people working on personal growth they're running away from a painful past or present. We're trying to run toward a more satisfactory future. However...
0: Of course, we're only living in the present ever. So that's actually a a way that guarantees a type of chronic unnecessary suffering. If somebody's really convinced that uh, their well-being is in the future, I, I don't try to talk them out of it I don't agree with them but it's up to them it's their life but if it makes sense to somebody I often present the view that there seem to be two fundamental life energies it's the way I see it the truth that we're all separate the truth we're all connected a lot of times cultures call the truth that we're separate masculine the truth that we're connected feminine and they each have a lot of different sort of qualities that are different On the separateness side, because it's about how we're different from others, we have much more of a likelihood of trying to act on the world. From the connection point of view, we're much more likely to try to accept and cooperate. So the masculine or the separate has much more of a linear uh, improvement type of association and the connecting has more of an acceptance immediacy quality, in my view. And so, because I think both are actually always present, not negotiable, I think it's more of a practical thing about uh, sort of figured ground: what do we lead with first? And in our culture, because there's so much uh, out of balance on the side of acceptance in the future, I think it's often helpful to start with acceptance and see what would it be like if this is as good as it ever got. I never got more enlightened, more, never had more money. Uh, I was never going to be more mature than I am now. My relationship will never be better. What, what feelings would come up if I were to accept that? Because that's actually accepting my immediate experience. And that's the only moment we're ever living in. So we're really talking about accepting reality. And a lot of unnecessary suffering, of course, comes from wanting reality to be other than it is. And I think it's incredibly helpful, not only personally, but socially, for improvement to happen. But it makes sense to me for that improvement to come from a ground of acceptance, rather than acceptance to come in the future when I've improved things. And so I might invite people to start with that ground of seeing what would it be like to stop claiming that there's anything wrong with me, anything wrong with my partner, anything wrong with the world. What if this is reality right now? Go through that difficult emotional work, and then from that ground of acceptance, then do the work of improvement. But at that point, there's no big cosmic significance riding on my improvement uh, project. It's not like acceptance. myself is down the road. So not like happiness is
1: down the road. Of course, I've met a lot of people who feel like acceptance might prevent them from working toward a quote-unquote better future for themselves. They feel like it's that very discomfort with the present that drives personal progress. And that if one were compassionate with and accepting of themselves, they'd do nothing.
0: That could be true. How could anybody promise you that there's a happy ending here and it's up to you? But basically what you're talking about is that you don't trust yourself. And are you at a point in your life where you want to find out who you are? Otherwise you might sort of be trying to put just band-aids on your basic lack of trust in yourself for the rest of your life. That's your call if you want, but is that really Likely to give you what you think you want. And if somebody was interested in a more abstract level of that issue, just to say it, usually that fear that if I don't push myself, I won't improve comes from a young, black and white, all or nothing organization, which is one of the hallmarks of uh, how we try to protect ourselves when very young and very immature. But if somebody actually starts examining, their experience, they probably will find that improvement and acceptance are, in fact, inseparable. And from a Buddhist point of view, they arise in codependent origination. They co-create each other. And you can't actually have one without the other. That if you accept who you are as part of the universe, the universe itself seems to be an evolutionary process. Life certainly is an evolutionary process, and we're all just expressions of life, and it's extremely unlikely that you would not have some part of yourself that wants to avoid pain and have more pleasure, have more satisfaction in your life. So acceptance actually includes accepting that part of ourselves that does want to improve. And if you want to improve, you actually have to accept who you are for significant transformative change to happen. Otherwise, you're just doing symptom relief. So you have to have a relationship with what's really at the heart of uh, your unnecessary suffering before you can really improve things significantly. Each actually includes the other sort of like the the yin-yang symbol, you know, where each has Mm -hmm. some element of the other in it it's not true that it's all or nothing either or.
1: So just to be clear, Tift isn't so much suggesting that personal development is problematic, or even criticizing self-improvement projects. Rather, he's saying as far as I can tell, a few things. First, that if we approach personal development, as some do, from a compulsive or obsessive place, or if anything comes from a compulsive place, really. While it can feel virtuous and goal-oriented, it may not actually map to the way we want to be or feel in the future. We may not get the feeling of happiness or freedom because our obsession comes not from running toward a hopeful future, but from present anxiety rooted in a painful past. Second, that if we put too much stock in quote-unquote the future, kicking happiness or contentment or the ability to take positive action into some distant tomorrow, we're likely to train ourselves to be unhappy in the present. Meaning even if we reach that elusive future, we won't find happiness there. As he says, we're only ever living in the present, and the person that's going to show up to that future is still you. Third, that if we approach personal development work from a place of personal acceptance of self-compassion, of self-trust, we're more likely to have positive outcomes, regardless of how we change in the process.
0: The most profound uh, improvement in the quality of our experience comes not from changing who we are or our life circumstances, although that's very valid. Instead, it uh, comes from a shift in how we relate to all of those circumstances. So it's not that what we are experiencing is not important. It's just considered that how we relate to what we're experiencing is even more important. And from a Buddhist point of view, we're we're not going to experience freedom from an absence of limitations because we're all profoundly limited people. You, You know, you might have very significant positive capacities that have been developed in the last 10 years, but you probably don't speak 20 languages and you're never going to be 20 again. And, you know, on and on and on. So uh, from a Buddhist point of view, we don't get freedom by an absence of limitations, but strangely enough, by being willing to be completely committed to our experience of limitation and do so deeply into that experience that potentially we discover that there's no essential nature to the, all this drama about myself and what's significant. Again, it not it's not fatalism. It doesn't mean don't try to improve the quality of our life. It's just that that's secondary. For somebody who's interested in personal growth, it's very, very smart and fortunate if they can improve qualities and ca- capacities, but it's not actually, that's not going to lead to freedom.
1: And how do we arrive at freedom?
0: One thing I'm usually inviting people to experiment with is to bring attention into immediate embodied sensation level experience with absolutely no interpretation, no labels, no commentary, no story, no drama. And just see for ourselves, my heart's beating fast, my stomach's all tight, my body is saying, we're going to die, we're going to die, get us out of here. Can we train ourselves, which is counter instinctual, to stay present and watch this sort of wave of panic come and go and find out for ourselves, so it's not somebody else's theory, where is there any evidence of harm or damage? Is it killing me to stay in relationship, especially as embodied intensity, aliveness? With this sense of vulnerability, is it something I have to organize my life around avoiding?
1: Of course, with vulnerability, anxiety often comes along for the ride.
0: Well, the anxiety comes from being human. Most people like to claim their anxiety is caused by a certain circumstance or feeling or person. But in my opinion, we should just count on having anxiety every day of our life until we die because we're a sensitive organic life form. You know, I think that most people, especially in our culture, in an unconscious way, have an impulse to jump out of their immediate embodied vulnerability, claiming that our disturbance is caused by a circumstance or our partner or the government or something. And then we can uh, sort of chase our tail forever, which is really the point
1: which is where our compulsions and obsessions come into play
0: it's a it's a reliable distractive technique to stay out of our immediate embodied vulnerability if we're looking for the solution in circumstances we have no control over if you and i were working in therapy i'd try to get some sort of speculation about what difficult feelings you might have organized your life around avoiding let's say that you know, you seem very competent.
1: Here he's speculating about me by way of example.
0: So maybe you have some issue about not wanting to feel like a failure or uh, ignored by everybody or something like that. So I might then say, well, how would it be just to say out loud, I give myself permission to feel like a failure off and on the rest of my life and just invite somebody then to bring attention into immediate embodied sensation level experience and see, well, okay, sucks, but is it killing me to have those feelings to me that's a very direct way if it makes sense to somebody nothing works for everyone but if if it does it's a very direct way of starting to dissolve that young organization of pretending to be divided against oneself and as we dissolve the sense of being divided against ourselves i find we just start start to dissolve the sense of being divided against life, alienated from life, because it's the same process, whether it's inner or outer.
1: Okay, I'm gonna take a little break here so I can talk about one of our sponsors, Precision Nutrition. You might say this episode is right in their wheelhouse because Precision Nutrition is the health and fitness industry's leader in behavior change coaching. So if today's podcast makes you want to learn more, you've got to check out their programs. Using the Precision Nutrition Method, which has been proven with over 100,000 clients, they teach fitness professionals, health coaches, dietitians, doctors, nurses, manual therapists, how to help anyone make healthy behaviors automatic. In fact, the Precision Nutrition Level 1 Certification is the world's number one rated nutrition coaching certification program and its secret sauce is the art and science of behavior change. But maybe you're just looking to improve your own behaviors so that you can start to eat healthier, move more, and feel better. Well, good news. The Precision Nutrition Coaching Program can help you with that too. Want to learn more about either Precision Nutrition Coaching or the Precision Nutrition Certification? Then head over to www.precisionnutrition.com forward slash JB. My initials For access to free courses, you can start today, and a nice discount on their paid programs. Again, that's www.precisionnutrition.com forward slash JB. One of my favorite writers, historian and philosopher Will Durant, has said that the preoccupation with the self soothes political unrest. But he's not the only one who's said something like this over the years. And historically, it's probably meant different things. For example, in feudal times, it could have meant that keeping peasants and serfs thinking about where their next meal might come from could prevent them from rising up against their lords or even the monarchy itself. In modern times, and I just saw this quote in the New York Times last week, here's the quote, the relentless optimization of the self often means that systemic and institutionalized barriers are reframed as personal problems rather than collective disenfranchisement. In other words, if you keep people thinking about personal growth or self-management, they're less likely to stand up against oppression. And not just because they're distracted, but because they actually think real social problems are just personal problems, to be solved with better mental frameworks or by making different behavioral choices. So I wanted to explore these ideas with some of our guests, looking at the relationship between self-improvement and community improvement. Here's Dr. Mandich again.
2: One of the things I think that is clear from the happiness literature is that we're social creatures. We're not meant to live independently in bubbles by ourselves, right? Uh, You know, 80 years of work from the Harvard Study of Adult Development, you know, found that the number one predictor of both our long-term health and our happiness is social connection. So, and you know, we see data coming out like loneliness can be as detrimental in terms of our health as obesity, smoking, or alcoholism. So we are wired to be in community, whatever that may look like. Um, So I think that we're missing a piece of the equation if we don't consider how we are in our community, if we just solely focus on us. And sort of the other piece of that conversation is that we can't give what we don't have, right? Like we can't pour from an empty cup. So part of the work has to be on ourselves, right? Because it, it's not selfish to focus on our happiness if it puts us in a position to be able to help other people in a, a to show up more fully, to have more energy, to, to have the capacity to give what we have.
1: And here's Dr. Orvidus.
2: It is really interesting to think about because you want to say, like, how could it be bad, right, for people to work on themselves? But if what happens is 99% of our energy goes into, like, I'm going to improve myself, things like you're even just at an immediate level, you're not, not even at community or, like, greater systems level, your relationships might fall down like the fall by the wayside what happens when you have kids or you have a significant other that you live with and suddenly it becomes like you have one percent of your time to work on relationship with with other people and sure it can be argued that if you're working on yourself then your relationships should improve too. But if you quite literally do not have the time, the hours in the day in order to do that, then what happens?
1: But all this presumes the luxury of time and the ability to choose.
0: You're probably familiar with like Maslow's hierarchy. Some people would think it's a little simplistic, but I think there's something basically useful there that if somebody is really operating at the level of uh, real survival level issues, you know, they they don't have food, their kids are starving, they're living in political oppression, they can't find a job, they're being discriminated against. You know, a lot of bad things, obviously. I think the sort of thing that we're talking about is sort of on a luxury level. And it doesn't mean bad, it just means that we might want to not lose track of our ability to explore these sort of issues actually is supported, I think, by the suffering of hundreds of millions of people around the planet. There's something sad about uh, being a a privileged person because our privilege is supported. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean I'm going to give away all my money. It just, but I don't want to be naive and think that my capacity to, explore things like freedom, it has something to do with my worth as a person. No, it's just a very fortunate life circumstance. And hopefully, I can use my benefits in service of being a benefit to other people. But it's not the same as the very useful work people do to try to address poverty and discrimination and all those things. That's uh, very valuable. And I think it could be very insulting to somebody to talk about, well, you're not practicing personal responsibility if they're
3: trying to feed their kids.
1: I'd like to conclude with a metaphor from Dr. Hogan here
3: that sums it up nicely, I think. So when I think about it, I I use the metaphor of, of, let's say, a river, right? And you're you're in a tiny boat, and you have the ability, let's say you're paddling, and you can turn left, you can turn right, When the when the river bends to the right, you can make sure you don't crash and stuff like that. And I think that's in that context is where I'm saying you you have some free will and you have some control over your life. The counter-argument is that I also agree with, is that what's really affecting and shaping everything is that damn river. It's the river that determines where you're going. It's you know, you have your boundaries, you have your direction. The river moves right, yada, yada, which leads to the next phase of, you know, in my metaphor, that river is, is what? It's the system. It's the social system, the economics, everything like that. Um, and the system, for the most part, is man-made. And so some people would say, why are you focusing on your limited ability to go to a little few feet to the left or a few feet to the right when this man-made river is taking a direction that really isn't in your best interests. And so your what you think is your free will, your ability to change is is within such a limited constraint that the real change is in changing the river. And I would agree with them too. I'm like but, but those three perspectives are not mutually exclusive. You still have control over that boat. You know you st- you can say the river should change. Yeah, but if you don't if you're not careful you're going to wreck. You're going to you know crash your boat into the side when the river turns. So they're all, they're all true and they're all important.
1: Okay. So this is where we're going to end part three of this three-part series. In part one, we covered how maybe surprisingly academic ideas around habit change and personal development have become so widespread in popular publishing. We talked about why that is and how we may be able to leverage some of these insights in our own lives we also talked about how the field of adult education has its own insights about the process of personal transformation, some that are different from the field of psychology. In part two, we continued discussing transformation learning, looking for insights from a field that hasn't quite enjoyed the popularity of habit and behavior science, but is full of important lessons about human transformation. And in part three, we turned a critical eye toward change in personal development projects, examining whether they can do more harm than good. We also discussed ways of being in the world that aren't centered around obsessive personal growth, but still oriented toward happiness, and perhaps even more importantly, freedom, while still recognizing the social context in which we all live. In the end, if you thought this episode was kind of all over the place, that was the point. I really wanted to gather a mix of perspectives to examine some of the ways that humans are trying to improve the quality of their lives and to tease out which practices are more likely to help and which practices could be doing more harm than good. Hopefully I was able to thread them together well enough and introduce you to some new thoughts and insights. Because with so much personal and professional pressure to quote-unquote grow, I figured we should at least spend a few minutes thinking about why and how. Before we end, I want to let you know that the Dr. John Berardi Show is now on YouTube and that we're running a little contest over there with our two sponsors, Precision Nutrition and Changemaker Academy. There are $15,000 in prizes up for grabs, and all you have to do to enter, it's really simple, is to subscribe to our new YouTube channel and take a screenshot of your subscription. Once you have that, email it to us at youtube at Make sure you spell it D R rather than D O C T O R, and you're done. Like I said, really simple. From there, just before the release of our next show, we'll randomly select three winners who get to choose from among 15,000 in prizes, including a spot in the Precision Nutrition Level 1 certification, the Precision Nutrition Level 2 certification, or Precision Nutrition Coaching. Winners get to choose which one they want. Winners also get to choose one of the following, a copy of my book, Changemaker, or up to $75 of Precision Nutrition Apparel. And finally, winners also get a spot in Changemaker Academy's new course, The Career Blueprint. Can't wait to find out who wins. Before signing off, I'd like to thank our production team. Marjorie Korn, my research partner and co-writer on the show. Martin D'Souza, our producer. Dylan Groff, who edited and sound designed this episode. And thanks to you for listening.